0: Not fully extinguishing a fire is the same as not extinguishing a fire in the first place. And I don't think that not completely extinguishing a fire uh, should be acceptable. Primarily, the reasons for not extinguishing it fully or not overhauling it poorly can be traced to uh, excuses or in a lot of times laziness.
1: Enchanted Sky Media. media.
0: The Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code Three, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code Three features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott.
1: That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code Three. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Rekindles are every firefighter's nightmare. When I was a reporter, PIOs would go to great lengths to get me to not use that word if a fire reignited. Avoiding a rekindle seems simple enough Use a lot of water and do a thorough overhaul. So how do even proficient fire departments have occasional rekindles? More importantly, how can they be avoided? My guest today has some answers. Nick Martin's been a firefighter since 1994. He started as a volunteer in a Philadelphia suburb. Since then, he's been both a career and volunteer firefighter in Pennsylvania, Maryland, South Carolina, and Virginia. He's currently a battalion chief with the Salisbury, North Carolina Fire Department. And he joins me now. Nick Martin, welcome to Code 3. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to have you. Is it fair to say that rekindles are caused by carelessness or are they just sometimes that they're unavoidable?
0: I think it's caused by carelessness. There are a variety of different situations that occur. I think there's a couple of differentiations. I think that you have to define at some point, you know, what what time passes um, between, you know, one fire and another for, you know, for the second fire to be a rekindle versus a second fire and i think primarily that relates to arson i mean there have there are occasions that that i've been a part of where somebody is very determined to burn down a property uh, and if you successfully extinguish it the first time they will try again so typically that's you know that's identified by other things that are that are found during the fire investigation process whether that's accelerants or different or multiple points of origin or things of that nature but you know arson aside you know i think that uh, any fire in a structure that is determined to be a, a reignition of the previous fire is by definition a rekindle. So uh, whether that results from smoldering debris or areas of the structure that were not properly overhauled and checked for, for hidden fire or things of that nature, I mean, that I think is carelessness. I think that, you know, the, the, the situations that, that people bring up are, you know, massive fires uh, where there are areas of collapse or whether there are hoarding conditions or things of that nature. And, and you know what? Those are challenging and they're, they can be long lasting manpower intensive. But that is our job as the fire department. You know, if there's a lot of stuff in there. And I don't think you can just say, oh, well, you know, there was too much stuff in there to take out. So therefore it ended up, you know, uh, rekindling. And that, that's not our fault because it was too much stuff to take out. No, it is your fault because you should have exerted the effort to take the stuff out, regardless of how long that that took
1: so then what are the most common sources of rekindles are they major buildings where you don't dig through everything in the overall or what
0: well i i don't know exactly how to categorize you know what happens the most often but i would say that the most common scenarios are a large fire you know a large fire that 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 becomes or already is defensive in nature particularly when there are areas of collapse that create hidden pockets. Sometimes it can be unsafe or very difficult to access hidden pockets in a collapsed area or in an unsafe structure. So typically what my department would do in that situation is post a fire watch, meaning that we would have anything from a, an engine company to just one person kind of hanging out at the scene To keep an eye on conditions.
1: When is it appropriate to leave an engine company on the scene after the fire is out? How do you determine that?
0: When you are 100% sure that the fire is not going to reignite. You know, when you're willing to stake your reputation and your department's reputation on the fact that it's not going to reignite. If somebody comes back and relights the building on fire in an arson, you know, as, as an arson, then, then that's not your fault. Anything short of that is your fault.
1: Is it still common for for fire officers to be disciplined if there's a rekindle on their watch?
0: I think it's not common enough, unfortunately, and I'm not a disciplined guy. I don't believe in fixing problems through discipline unless absolutely necessary, but not fully extinguishing a fire is is the same as not extinguishing a fire in the first place, you know, is not, you know, not finding a, a, a person trapped in a house would not be acceptable or should not be acceptable. And I don't think that not completely extinguishing a fire uh, should be acceptable, primarily when the reasons for not extinguishing it fully or not overhauling it poorly can be traced to uh, excuses or in a lot of times laziness
1: in your experience are there and i don't need you to name names but in experience in your experience are there fire companies that are more likely to make these mistakes are they ones with saying more more young firefighters or perhaps with the uh, older ones
0: I, I think that it's a culture thing uh, i think that it doesn't necessarily have to do with The size or call volume or career volunteer status—it has to do more with culture. I mean, as you can probably tell by my pretty hardline approach on this, you know, I was raised in a fire service culture where, you know, your your response, you know, having a having a rekindle one of your fires was about one of the most uh, negative things that could happen in terms of your reputation as a fire officer or your reputation as a company. You know, particularly. Uh, And the department I came up in, it was the truck company, the the last truck company to leave the scene's responsibility to ensure that that, that, you know, there wasn't going to be a rekindle. And, you know, people that that allowed there to be a rekindle were were pretty harshly dealt with anywhere from from official disciplinary action to transfers to a different company and, and certainly a pretty department wide ding on on their reputation.
1: Now, I'm a big fan of volunteers, but I'm curious whether there's a specific division between volunteers and career departments in the number of rekindles. I know you don't have stats, but what's your anecdotal feeling on that?
0: You know, I I think that if you ask, I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but I mean, if you say, Can there be a difference between volunteer and career? I think that the answer to that is only to the extent that the public perceives there would be a difference. And most of the public, right or wrong, does not even really know whether their fire department is career or volunteer. And I think that most of the public expects exactly the same level of service from their department, whether it is career or volunteer. So again, I kind of think it comes back to culture. I mean, I can, some of the departments that I'm referencing in my history you know, I'm thinking of two in particular, and one was a career department, and one was a was an all-volunteer department, and the expectation was exactly the same in both, that, that rekindles are un, unacceptable, and because that was the mindset, you know, everybody fell into line with that.
1: I'll be back with more right after this. This is the part of the show where I have to remind you that Code 3 is listener-supported. It's a major way this show makes money. Now look, I don't think anybody downloads a new Code 3 episode and is real excited to hear me ask you to pay for a free podcast. This is the part that you sit through while you patiently wait for the good stuff to come back on, or the part that you just fast forward through. Nobody likes it. I hear you and here's the secret. I hate doing it. Do you think I'd rather be pitching you for cash right now or talking to my guest about saving lives and property? But I've got to pay the rent and keep the lights on, so I have to do it. I think the best way to solve this problem is to set a price at which this portion of the episode is no longer necessary. So here's the deal. When this show's listeners pledge a total of $500 a month through Patreon, I'll stop asking for money. How does that sound? If you can help, if you get something out of this show, and if you also want the bull session bonus content, go over to Code3Podcast.com support and make your monthly pledge. And help me cut this segment out of the show. Thanks. So give me some tips for easy and obvious ways we can be sure that a fire won't rekindle.
0: Well, I, I think the, the first thing is to make a, a differentiation. A lot of times the first flag people throw is cause and origin investigation. Um, and having done that for a little while myself, I kind of can, can think back to when I've had to do that. And I kind of liken overhaul or checking for extension and overhaul with primary searches and secondary searches. So, you know, everybody knows that a primary search in terms of victims is supposed to be as thorough as you can, but also very rapid. And and during a primary search, that's when you're really looking for viable victims that are either alive or can be resuscitated. And a secondary search is very, very thorough. It's very methodical. And you're not necessarily looking for survivors at a a secondary. And you don't leave until you're sure there's absolutely nobody in there alive or dead. So it's kind of similar. You know, when I say check for extension... That is that initial check of the uh, area immediately around the fire area, uh, the walls and ceilings, uh, contents and things like that. But it's done in a manner that is you know, opening up as little as possible to ensure that there is not fire that is going to continue to extend. And departments should train their people to have knowledge of what investigators look for in terms of what a burn pattern is and, and what they kind of look like, you know, that investigators are going to look for the, the air, the item first ignited and the source of heat so that they learn to try and leave electrical outlets and space heaters and things of that nature alone to the extent that they can. So then that, that check for extension thing becomes a very cursory, you know, confirmation that, that there's no running fire in the walls. And then you let the fire investigator do their thing and take their pictures and analyze their scene and everything. And then, after the fire investigator is done with the scene, uh, and then the companies should come back in and do the complete overhaul. And when we do the complete overhaul, that's when I would really advocate taking any area that has been affected by flame down to the studs until you're sure and to clean studs where you're sure there is no hidden fire, to take the windows and doors and trim them out, reduce them back down to their studs, get all the fluffy stuff out of the building. And when I say fluffy stuff, you know, I mean, furniture, chairs, mattresses, piles of clothes, you know, those kinds of things, even when they look like they're really wet down, can retain a lot of heat and are often the, co- the cause uh, of a rekindle. Other areas that retain heat are the areas between structural members, such as where two studs come together uh, where joists come together, kind of those those um, those areas where two structural members touch can be a, a spot where a, a very small amount of heat just kind of festers and festers over and over again, and given fuel and oxygen, of course, will reignite. So, you know, I, I think that when you kind of make that differentiation of what you're going to do before fire investigation and after fire investigation, um, then once after fire investigation, I mean, it's really just excuses as to why we don't uh, do the things necessary to, to ensure that we're not going to have a rekindle.
1: How useful is your thermal imaging camera for this kind of process? I mean, when you're doing the overhaul rather than simply relying on looking for the fluffy stuff, using a TIC to look at, you know, structural members.
0: I mean, a, a thermal imager is a tool, um, but it's not a replacement for a hook. And I, I think that you use the thermal imager to the extent that you're willing to bet your 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 reputation on the thermal image they're they're not 100% reliable in terms of what they show or in terms of the heat you know that they might measure as far as temperature readout a lot of people don't really understand all the true science behind you know what a thermal imager sees and doesn't see so there's kind of some user error there so i, I would use it to augment what i'm doing but i would not use it i mean when in doubt i'm, I'm going to open it up I, I think that a lot of people also underestimate exactly, you know, how how much an insurance company is going to replace, you know, when they come in there. I mean, if it's got smoke staining on it, it's going to be cleaned and or replaced. And I think that you know a lot of people underestimate how much insurance has budgeted uh, to do that kind of work in the house. So I, I really think that the fire, you know, there's some firefighters that would argue or or use as reasoning that they're doing somebody a favor by not taken out a, a, a drywall or you know a stud or something like that and I think that in in nine and a half out of ten cases you're going to find that it makes absolutely zero impact on the restoration or repair of the house or on the cost of that repair to, to make sure one thing that does continuing continue, continue to, to to impact the occupy the, the occup you know the ability to occupy a house is if you light a second fire in it and you do more damage the second fire is almost always worse. The, the structural members are, are already exposed from some fire movement or overhaul before. And so the fire takes possession of more of the structure. If there are any contents left in the building, those contents get lost. So, I mean, I would say it is definitely more detrimental to, to, to err to on the side of not opening up in, in terms of property conservation. And I think that's where the thermal imager has, you know, just like within primary search, the thermal imager has caused a degradation in many people's search tactics. I think the thermal imager, while it is a useful tool and it can augment the process, has, has served a lot of times to degrade the quality of overhaul that is done in some organizations.
1: Now, that surprises me. If I'm hearing you right, you're saying that people are relying on it too heavily and that that's a problem.
0: Yeah, I, I think a lot of times people are taking a look uh, a glance over over a wall or a glance over an area with the camera and they're looking for an area of white to indicate heat or they're looking at a temperature readout and if they don't see white and the, and the temperature says 100 degrees and they say, oh, that's good, and and they don't really take it any further than that regardless of what other visual signs or, or red flags there might be.
1: All good points to think about. Nick Martin, thanks for being on Code 3 today. All right, thank you. And we put some more information about how to avoid rekindles on our website at code3podcast.com slash rekindle. Check it out. Here's the trivia question. When you're supplying a standpipe system, what's the rule of thumb for pressure to add for each story in elevation? I'll have the answer right after this.
0: Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan.
1: Now's the trivia answer. When you're supplying a standpipe system, the rule of thumb is to add 5 PSI for every story in elevation. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Love to hear what you think of the show. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe.
0: Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.